Welcome to Breaking Paradigms, a podcast where we talk about global perspectives on spatial planning in practice and theory, by Constance Frech and Sarah Kushi. In our last episode, we interviewed Robert Rosenberger on the definition of hostile design and its examples. And today we're looking further into the international and historical perspectives of hostile design. Where did it come from and how does it present globally? If you are interested in the previous episode, we will link it down below, as well as further literature like Robert Rosenberger's own book, Callous Objects which he kindly provides for free, and other interesting scientific literature, which we base this episode on. As Rosenberger pointed out previously, hostile design goes by many names, and the use of the word hostile implies a certain judgment, which is why scientific publications seem to prefer the terms defensive or defensible design. Historically speaking, Hostile design is a sort of a new and controversial concept and is yet at the same time sort of an old and controversial concept. Aubrey Bader writes, Behind our current form of hostile architecture lies a milieu of social, economic and political pressures. And underlying these pressures is the basic human instinct to want safety. Take a moment. What does that actually mean? During our research, we realized what the source of this old and the same time new concept was. The easiest way to explain this dichotomy is to differentiate between the existence of hostile design in general, which seems to have been present for a long time, as historic examples show, and the scientific approach, which was triggered during the Cold War in the United States, as city living became less desirable and communities fell apart. Crime rose and security or the feeling of security plummeted. So throughout the 1960s architect Oscar Newman and criminologist C. Ray Jeffrey developed the theory of defensible space, which was published in the early 1970s. Newman and Jeffrey weren't the first ones to think about it working scientifically on crime prevention through design. They based their findings on the previous works of Charles Abrams, Shlomo Angel, Jane Jacobs and Elizabeth Wood. However, we would argue they were the first ones to give it a larger stage, even though at the time of publication it was largely ignored. So what about the theory of defensible space? Is it a handbook on how to be hostile? Not really. The theory emphasizes that man-made environments, such as cities, can be planned and reshaped in a way that prevents crime and the perception of crime. The philosophy is called crime prevention through environmental design and features a variety of strategies. In our next episode, we will talk more in depth with Macarena Rao, who is the current president of the International CPTED Association on the current state of crime prevention through environmental design 
and how it has developed since its formation. Modern, hostile design, defensible architecture and crime prevention through environmental design all share the same roots, as especially first-generation CPTED employed some measures that by today's standards would be considered hostile. As approaches are multifaceted, it is a tightrope walk between preventing severe crimes like robberies, rape, narco-trafficking and other violent crimes and hiding the problems of a society like poverty and its effects from those who are privileged enough to decide they do not want to face these realities. Beda specifically criticizes that in the US, in order to revitalize cities, lawmakers and outspoken citizens have discovered groups of people they deem undesirable. So in hopes of enticing more suburbanites back into the cities, they created spaces and policies to deter these undesirables. Internationally, city authorities aim to curb unwanted behavior or potential behavior as well. But is it the same everywhere? Macarena Rao told us in our interview. Really, more than uh, the difference, uh, more than in the north and the south, uh, for my Uh, perspective is a difference uh, from one borough to another. It's very funny. It has to do with social cohesion and the structure of the social network. Sometimes in a northern city, for example, in the United States, in Canada, we can find uh, some uh, neighborhoods that are super open because they have an incredible leadership there and all neighbors are involved and engaged and they practice barbecues and they don't need to have a defensible architecture. But sometimes in the same city, very near, we have gate communities all around because they don't want to connect with the neighbor and they want to be super protected, but they don't understand that to be in a secure island doesn't mean necessarily that you are protected. But definitely also stays the same is the will to deter a specific group of people via the means of some type of restrictive measure which is supposed to antagonize the group and influence their behavior. As Sterilus puts it, it seems that the focus is on keeping certain groups from existing comfortably within public spaces for a variety of reasons, with little concern for how these hostile interventions affect the space and its users as a whole. Generally speaking, we have deduced two main strategies for these measures within the scientific literature and newspaper articles, design and policy. Let's explain what we mean by that. Design is fairly easy to understand. We gave ample examples for different measures from the armrests to the noise machines to the waste bins. All of them fall under the broad umbrella of design and can be found all around the world. The other type of restrictive measure is policy, creating laws, standards and strategies that target specific groups. One example that showed this very well comes from Cape Town, South Africa. As many unsheltered people in the city depend on open fires to keep warm and rough sleeping, the city implemented a set of laws which makes starting a fire, rough sleeping in public spaces and cars, illegal. The fines are set 
at about half of the median monthly income of a South African. Tom Heed, the author of the article, which we will link in the description, claims that this is directly aimed to incarcerate unsheltered people, as they have no means to pay fines that steep and therefore perpetuate the cycle of poverty. However, many places don't just have to create current or new policies. The Vagrancy Act of 1824 that hails from the UK, which bans people from sleeping out in the open air or in any disuse buildings, is still in many penal codes around the world. As South Africa was occupied and colonialized by the British, they put this law in place and it still applies. South Africa is not the only country affected. Many UK laws are still in place in former colonies. However, the effects of these policies still affect poor and vulnerable communities to this day. However, these types of policies are not limited to one continent. Many countries in Europe, for example, still abide by discriminatory spatial policies initially meant to target the Romani diaspora. Laws that to this day affect the lives of Romani and non-Romani peoples, especially those living in poverty. Lastly, sometimes it is not a law in specific, but a practice such as targeted police patrols and raids, like targeting areas where street children find shelter. With this example, you can see once more the difficult coexistence of hostile measures and crime reduction. For example, when narco-cartels use street children specifically for illegal activities, that makes them even more vulnerable to police raids as well. Whether through design, architecture, policies, fines or practices, planning authorities make decisions that leave a mark. In researching this topic, we also sometimes wondered, does everything that has a negative impact automatically qualify as hostile? Take the example of overpasses or underpasses for pedestrians. They are usually used to increase traffic security. But as we mentioned in our episode on the walkable city, they also create barriers and fear spaces. What would you say? What makes a measure hostile to you? Have you noticed any in your city or town? There are several initiatives that collect examples of hostile designs from around the world. We will link the Vienna-based initiative Hostile Vienna in the description, as well as all our resources. And we are looking forward to exploring the concept of crime prevention through environmental design further in our next episode. This was Breaking Paradigms by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchet. Be part of the conversation. If you like what we do, consider supporting us and join our Patreon community. Connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and at breakingparadigms.org. Content and editing by Constanze Frech and Sarah Couchet. Sound design by Didac Barroso and Florian Frech.